Hey, it's a joy to be here with you all tonight on this wonderful holiday service. I love our church. I really do. This is our, uh, this is, we're about halfway through our second year, I guess I should say, Lex and I, in, in, in being a part of the membership of Campus Church. So this is our second Christmas here as well. And I love the way that Campus Church does Christmas. There is a pretty wonderful atmosphere that comes through this building. We have obviously a great portion of who we would call our church family that, that part ways and, and travel across the country and even across the world. But I love the, the feeling that we still bring together and the friendly camaraderie that comes across. And we've definitely felt that. We appreciate it. I can't tell you as well just how appreciative I've been of some of the, the gift side of, as well of, of Christmas. Gift giving is one of the most exciting, most wonderful times of the Christmas season, and Campus Church is pretty good at it. We got to see that wonderful offering that came through for the Christmas project, how encouraging that was. Personally, I've experienced some gratefulness from, from many of you, had little treats and little gifts that pop up in my office or at our door, and so thankful for that as well. It's enjoyable. You, get, you feel appreciated when a gift arrives at your door, and it's something that, I mean, it's, we, we celebrate the very greatest gift that's ever come to man, that's ever come to the world at Christmas, and so the idea of gift giving, though it can get out of hand, though it can distract us from the true point of Christmas, it still does celebrate, in many ways, the very focus of Christmas, the idea of gift giving. And so I'm thankful for that. I, I enjoy the idea of gifts. But it, it is, you know, sometimes even within the gift giving, we can alter maybe what a true gift is. Last week, on this evening, we were finishing up our children's Christmas program and got to discuss a little bit of that precious gift of Jesus Christ, the perfection of a gift that is Jesus Christ the way that, that he was brought, the love that he showed through everything, and the very motivation, the heart behind his giving of that gift. There's no side, there's no element of the motivation of Jesus Christ that is anything of self-benefit. It was all out of love for us, wasn't it? It was all, all Jesus Christ desired to do was to express his love to us in providing the gift that he did, that is himself, that is his coming. So thankful for that. And that's, that's an element of gift giving that can sometimes be easy to lose. I mean, if you have, your, have you ever received something that was maybe presented as a gift only to discover that it was only so in name? Maybe someone offered something to you in the form of a gift, yet you shortly realized later that it came with strings attached, like the expectation that you provide something in return. Now, there is a friendly exchange sometimes with, with Christmas gifts. Of course, there's an understanding among, among family sometimes, maybe among friends. You usually get a gift for each other and such. But if the gift is for that motivation, I mean, is it really still a gift? Maybe you've received what you thought was a gift only for the giver to eventually ask for it back. Has that ever happened to you? I've seen some pretty rough situations in which that's happened. I, I won't share any personally, but maybe that is an experience that you've had. Maybe you've received a gift that, even if it wasn't desired back, maybe the giver had certain expectations for how you were to use the gift. Maybe multiple times they came back and asked for an update on how, are you, how are you, you were using it, which it, it could still be a gift, but sometimes it, it doesn't feel as genuine when there's such a genuine, or when there's such an interest in how you're planning to use it. What really is a, a true gift? Sometimes we put rules on gift giving. I've been a part of gift exchanges before where there is a limit on what you need to spend. Can't spend less than this, can't spend more than this, gotta spend in this particular area. Maybe you've been a part of one of those, one of those gift giving 
exchanges. Maybe you've been a part of a gift exchange where everyone has assigned somebody to give a gift. Uh, at one point, I remember a, a family gift exchange in which the person that was assigned to me was someone I had never met, a girlfriend of a, of a cousin that I did not know. The gift was still good, but you know, there's, there's something about me, uh, uh, the meaning behind a gift when you know somebody that knew you put thought into it. What is a true gift, and what, what elements does a true gift giver have? A true gift giver offers a gift without obligation. They don't feel like they have to, they just want to. A true gift giver offers a gift from a genuine heart motivation. A true gift giver offers a gift without any expectation of return. If somebody is to offer a gift out of a genuine heart, they don't expect anything in return. That's really what a gift is. And the greatest example of that, of course, again, is Jesus Christ, who offered a gift knowing that he would never receive anything that was anywhere close to what, would, what could be called a return. That's a true gift giver. When suddenly a giver expects a return, it can sometimes be offensive, hurtful, even harmful to the recipient. There is an assumption that a gift was genuinely given and then all of a sudden that's broken. An examination of the heart of God knows that, that he desires a true gift giver among his people, among his believers. So if we'd say that we're children of God, he desires of his children that we would then provide, serve, give in ways that would be entirely genuine in ways that could be identified as that of a true gift, a true gift giver. And what a time, Christmas, to discuss the idea of this. The idea that, that we can find from the word of God that we ought to be willing to help our fellow believers with no expectation of return. No expectation of return. We're in Nehemiah 5 tonight. Nehemiah chapter 5. In Nehemiah, we find a group of Jews that actually experienced this type of harm that comes from what was assumed to be a genuine gift, but eventually it's found that there was an expectation of return. There was a desire from, for personal benefit on the other side of what was given. You see, it was understood that, that, that this group of Jews, they had significant needs. There were problems in their lives and, and they needed others to step in and help them out with these problems, to help them out with these needs, with these issues. But instead of a genuine desire to help, instead of an expectation of no return, they found that the givers actually desired personal benefit. That was the motivation behind it. And this is not the desire that God would have had. God desired that any of the Jewish brethren would, of course, supply the needs of their brethren, of fellow believers in God, without any expectation of return. That is kind of the form of a gift, being willing to give, being willing to serve, being willing to offer without that expectation of personal benefit. We know that in Nehemiah, the captivity of the Jews had in both Babylon and Persia, it had come really to its close. By the time of Nehemiah, they had spent almost about 90 years or so in this area. Nehemiah, he's still living in Persia. He is a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. And when he hears of some of the troubles that many of the Jews were facing in Jerusalem, of course, his heart becomes very heavy. He desires immediately to return to meet some of the needs that were over there in Jerusalem and to help them build a wall once again that would allow themselves to be protected against some of the attacks out there. This was not an easy job. It wouldn't be an easy job, but Nehemiah felt the burden to step forward and help with this particular work. God directed him to boldly enough ask 
if he could do so from the king. And, and God, through his providence, allowed Nehemiah to walk forward in this particular work. He traveled back to Jerusalem and began the work of the wall. And really in record time, this started to pop back up. Some really amazing works of God came to fruition in spite of many of the challenges, in spite of much of the opposition, the persecution that the Jews at this time were facing. Nehemiah moved forward. But in his efforts to prevent outside threats from coming in, in his efforts to protect the Jews from things that could happen from the outside in Jerusalem, there was an internal struggle. There was an internal problem that had probably been festering even before he arrived that he seemed to miss until the point that it really exploded. And that's where we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 5. In Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to find, as we examine in the first few verses of this chapter, we'll discover the importance of caring for fellow believers in need. Let's look at verse 1, Nehemiah 5, verse 1. It says, And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. So here's the explosion. There was a great cry, and it comes from Jewish families against other Jewish families. This is some civil unrest, some fellow believers against fellow believers, people that were supposed to be worshiping God against people that were supposed to be worshiping God. There's a great cry. It is significant, the cry that's brought forth. It's not over a, a simple, insignificant struggle. It is severe. It comes from a series of grievances. And the source of this cry was not just from one little group of people. It was not just from the children or just from the women or just from the men. It was the families entirely and many of them coming forth in, in a unanimous way with one great cry against some of their fellow believers. Why was this? There was a disparity between the prosperous Jews and the poor Jews. Those who were less fortunate and those that maybe had a lot to dwell upon from previous generations. Even maybe some, some that, that have had, had done very well with their money and some that might not have. There's disparity and that disparity is growing and there's a conflict as well that's growing between these two groups of Jews. It's detailed further in verse number two where it says, for there were that said, we, our sons and our daughters are many. Therefore we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. So we discover that this issue, this financial issue, it had to do with even their, their ability to survive. Some of these Jews, they, had, they were so poor. They were so desperate. They were so greatly in need that they were running out of food. And they needed to survive. Their families are, are getting to the point where if they don't quickly achieve food, that they are going to, they're going to lose their lives even to hunger. The persistence of this poverty was, was difficult. The Bible does teach us in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, that the poor shall never cease. There really will always be individuals that struggle financially, individuals who find themselves in less fortunate circumstances until the other side of eternity. And that's the case here. Sometimes it's assumed that poverty only comes from some foolish decisions, but that may not always be the case. And in the case of, of these individuals, for many of them, there, there, did, there did seem to be a number of circumstances that could have easily led to their poverty, circumstances that would have been outside of their, outside of their control. In verse number three, it says, some also there were that said, we have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. So here's another group of Jews that step forward and say, hey, their poverty has gotten so bad that in order to purchase food, they've had to sell off their land, their vineyards, their, their houses, 
They've had to sell off all of their, invest, all of their investments, their possessions. They've had to sell away in order just to buy food. That's how desperate their situation was. And why was it such a struggle? There was a dearth. There's a famine. That word dearth, it's used other, in other passages. Genesis 41, speaking of the famine in Egypt. 2 Kings 4, speaking of a famine that Elisha dealt with. The dearth was a struggle. There's a scarcity of food. What, what, are, what are some of these families supposed to do? And why was there uh, this famine anyway? Uh, we're told in Ezra chapter 10 that there was a great rain. It's possible some storms would have messed up the harvest that some of them had planned on. Of course, there was also some opposition outside the city. It's possible as well that some of what usually would brought, be brought into the city for, for easy selling would not have been as easily brought in, potentially causing some inflated prices. There's less to be sold, and so with that, some of the families less fortunate are not so easily able to come by what they need to be able to survive, the food that they need. And of course, since Nehemiah arrived, many of them had given their efforts, their work to the wall, to building up the wall. Less work for the fields. And so with that, there's a, numer- there's a number of reasons why some of these individuals might have ended up in this desperate situation. The desperation that was brought by the famine. There's another aspect that, that caused some of this desperate situation that they were in. We find in verse 4 it says, There were also that said, we... Or excuse me, there were also that said, we have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. So they were paying taxes as well, paying taxes back to the Persian kingdom, and they were, from historical records, probably very significant taxes. And some of them could not afford it. Not only could they not afford food, they could not pay the tax either. They're borrowing money just to pay off the taxes, in addition to not being able to obtain the food that they needed. And the worst of it we find in verse number five. It says, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children, as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. The desire to eat and the inability to do so was so extreme that some of these Jews had to sell away not only all of their possessions, but even themselves and their children. This was allowed in the law. They were allowed, if they're in debt, to sell themselves over to servitude to somebody until that debt's paid off. But they had already sold everything else. And so some of these individuals, there's no hope for them, assumedly, to be able to pay everything off. They're essentially handing their lives over to these more wealthy Jews, expecting never to be able to live on their own again in order for their children to be able to survive, in order for their children to be able to enjoy food once again, they needed to sell them over even. And that is a desperate situation, a desperate situation. And God had given some of the other Jews in this area, some of these more wealthy Jewish Jewish nobles and rulers, they had the opportunity to help the need. And maybe, maybe in their perspective, they, they, they were helping. Well, we're providing them food. We're just making sure that we receive some sort of benefit for this. What did Nehemiah think about all of this? In verse number six, it says, and I was very angry when I heard their cry in these words. Nehemiah was looking to govern this land in a way he desired to honor God, but he was justifiably angry in this situation. He wanted the people that he was governing to worship and honor what God desired of them. And and really, they were not fitting their lives within what the character of God would have desired. Rather than offer freely the needs that were there, rather than fulfill the needs of their brethren, 
without expectation of return, they were always looking for personal benefit. And Nehemiah was angry at this, justifiably so. There is, of course, cause to be angry when, when sin is present in a way that it should not be. In Nehemiah, he's angry. These men were brethren, but they showed no brotherly love. So how did he act with the motion filling him up? What, what did he act? What did he do? In verse 7, it says, Then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, Ye exact usury, every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. He took the time he needed for serious consideration and approached the Jewish nobles and rulers that were responsible for this particular outcry. Ye exact usury, every one of his brother. In other words, you are charging interest against your own brethren. Is this just a cry out for, for social justice? Is, there just, is he just upset because he doesn't like the situation, doesn't like dealing with it? No, this was actually in opposition to the commands of God. This was actually in disobedience to what God had so clearly commanded beforehand. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, the Bible tells us, If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. It was against God's law for any in Israel to charge interest against his own brethren. No believer of God was to look for personal gain in helping another believer of God. In Leviticus 25, verses 35, uh, in, in the forward verses, it tells us, and if, thy brother, excuse me, and if thy brother be waxen poor and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him. Yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. Take thou no usury of him or increase, but fear thy God, that thy brother may live with thee. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Clearly stated, the poor brethren were to be taken care of by the prosperous brethren. You have a fellow believer in God that's in need? Meet that need. Take care of it. Do you have the means? Help them. And don't expect return. That is, you are not to charge interest. You, let, you lend to them. You let them borrow. And don't, don't look for personal gain. Don't look for personal benefit. Don't look for expectation of return. This would be consistent with God's own actions. As in verse 38, he, he delivered them from Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt. He allowed himself to be the protective God over them, even though they constantly complained, they constantly rebelled. God provided for them in such amazing ways. Is this for personal benefit? No. God did it out of an unconditional love he had for his own people. And it's within this character of God, it's within this spirit that we ought to conduct ourselves as well. A number of years ago, right after Lex and I were married, we were living in Michigan for just a few months before we moved down to Pensacola, and I get a call from my mom, who also lived up in Michigan. I get a call from her one night. Uh, as we're finishing dinner, she says, hey, Brendan, I, need, I, I, I asked about 10, 12 other guys in the church. I need you to come over and, and help me out. I just bought a chicken coop. Well, I bought a shed to be a chicken coop. Um, understand that before... Lex and I had London before my mom had a grandchild. Uh, she was already kind of starting that process with the chickens, okay? Uh, the chickens she adopted, she really treated as family. So she wanted them to be luxurious, and she bought a very nice shed to transform into a mansion of a chicken coop for these, for these little chickens. So she calls me and asks if I would go help pick this shed up with a number of other men from the church, 
and uh, carry it over for her. So I said, sure, I, you know, I'm expecting with, with this many guys, we're going to finish this pretty quickly. So I drive over to the address where she had purchased the shed. Have you ever gone to help someone with something, and when you arrive, you instantly think, this is going to take a lot longer than I was thinking? That was the case here. We arrive and discover that this shed, I mean, it was, it was mammoth. It was, it was a solid wood, and it was dug into the ground about a foot and a half, so uh, even just to move it, we were going to have to dig. So the 10, 12 of us that were there, we began to do so, and it took quite some time to get through the ground, get to the bottom of the shed, and then we had the challenge of how are we going to pick this thing up? We tried to pick it up ourselves by reaching our hands under there, but that was not going to work. The weight of it was even too great for the amount of men that we had there, including the, the strong firefighter that was there, the few teenage bodybuilders that were there. It, just, it was too much. So how were we going to do this? There was an engineer in the group, and he figured out some way where we took this thick pipe and rolled the shed all the way to the trailer to eventually take over to my parents' house. That, that worked. Understand, when I got the call, it was between 5 and 6 in the evening. By the time I got back home, it was around 11.30, I believe, in the evening. And so some of these guys that came to help, uh, they came directly from work. They missed dinner. They missed time with family, came to help my mom, and were happy to do so. It honestly was an enjoyable time. But there really wasn't payment that came with this. I know my mom would have thanked them a little bit later through some means, but there was really no expectation of return with this kind of thing. And I appreciated the spirit of those guys. I was family, so I guess there's some obligation to help. But a lot of these guys, they just did so completely freely. And I think it's that kind of spirit, that kind of willingness, that is very attractive and very desirous among Christian believers, among children of God. If we are really to exemplify the spirit of Jesus Christ through our lives, we ought to be willing to help our fellow brethren, to help other children of God, to help other believers of God by helping, by meeting needs, financial needs, meetings, or needs of time, needs of resources, being willing to meet those needs without any expectation of return. The principles of caring for fellow believers in need are applicable as well for us today. I mentioned earlier, I believe our church has a really friendly camaraderie, and I believe that firmly. I believe that there is a true Christian friendliness that, that exudes from, from our church, and I, I love that. I'm thankful for that. I think people are welcomed when they come in. Let's make sure to transfer that friendly camaraderie into the actions of needs when those arrive as well. We must beware of the danger that comes from a heart of motivation that seeks the benefit of self in these moments. Instead, of, or in, in opposition to a willingness to serve and help other believers without any expectation of return. We ought to make sure what the, that the motivation is Christ-like, that it is something that would be consistent with God's word as opposed to something that purely benefits ourselves. We've accomplished this major Christmas project offering, and I, I'm thankful for everybody that put their hands and feet to this particular work to help out fellow believers in Christ. What a wondrous work. And honestly, it, it comes, I believe, mostly from a heart of selflessness to be able to provide the funds to that regard for so many different ministries. I'm greatly thankful for that. Even in moments like that, we have to be careful at times that our motivation has no element of desire only for appreciation or for some kind of recognition. That is, we ought to be aware of the danger of exacting the usury, if you will, of appreciation. Exacting the usury, if you will, of, of recognition of doing things for others for the purpose of trying to receive some benefit for ourselves as opposed to doing them out of a true, genuine heart 
to love on the other believers that God has called us to love. We perform acts of service for someone. We fill a need. We don't ask for anything in return, nor do we make evident any sort of expectation of personal benefit. Now, those things can be nice. It can be nice to be recognized. It can be nice to be appreciated. It can be nice to have some kind of gift received for meeting a need for somebody else. But we ought to beware that that not become the priority. In the Christmas season, in providing Christmas gifts, it's a wonderful thing, but the desire ought not be primarily to receive something back. That's the concept that we're looking for as believers. We ought to be careful that, that we stay away from entertaining thoughts like, you know, a thank you really would have gone a long way. I've done so much for him or her. The least they could do is express some sort of appreciation. I never received a thank you note from them, so I won't plan on helping them anymore. It's easy to start to drift into those kinds of thoughts when we've helped somebody and don't feel like we've received what we may feel like we deserve for providing for a need. But if we begin to allow our countenance to be brought down in those moments because of that, what really was the motivation? What really was the desire? And could it be referred to really as a true gift? Now, based on, based on these verses, based on the verses we've gone through so far, lending is allowed. You can still lend to others. There is, there is an opportunity for others to borrow and, and really to expect the return of, you know, I've, I've lent something to you. I do expect eventually to receive that back, not to always give everything in that sense. But God still has principles even, even within this. Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, At the end of every seven years thou shalt make a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor that lendeth ought unto his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. God made sure that there was not a condemnation of somebody that ends up in a situation in which they have to, in a sense, serve somebody else because of a debt. They have a debt so large that they have to give up working for themselves and instead work for the person that they owe the debt to. There would come a time where they could be released freely. Within that seventh year, they would be allowed to be let go. And this is really a, a this is really coming from a God who, who truly does have an unconditional love for his people. To allow people to go freely is, is quite a wonderful thing, but it's something that's not always easy for the lenders. God used this to, pre to prevent the absolute devastation of a man and his hope. Nevertheless, this would prove challenging for many. Why would God institute something that seemed in opposition to maybe what we would believe is, is fair? You know, wouldn't it be fair to make sure that they would pay that back if I'm offering something? Why would they be allowed to just so freely walk away without paying the debt in the seventh year? This is all part of the spirit of God's own character. In verses 7 and 8 of the same chapter, it says, If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. But thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. If a need became apparent, the need was to be met among the brethren. When God makes known to you a need among your brethren, among your fellow believers in Christ, he desires for you to meet that need if he's given you the means to do so. How many of you have ever had one of those moments where a need becomes clear? Someone needs something. And your thoughts are almost regretfully reminded immediately of how you're able to meet that need. You think a need arises and you think, wow, I, I have the time for that. I have the resources for that. 
you know, I was just given this amount of money for exactly whatever need that is that just came up for this. Isn't that incredible when those kinds of things happen? We, have, we, we ought to beware that we don't shy away from those thoughts. God sometimes in his providence will bring us the realization that we have exactly the means to provide for a need that somebody has that's risen before our eyes. If that's been the case, do not shy away from those opportunities. Don't reject those opportunities so clearly granted to you by God. In verse number 9 in Deuteronomy chapter 11, it says, Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand. And thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, and thou givest him naught. And he cry unto the Lord against thee, and it be sin unto thee. God addresses the potential excuse that somebody might have. Well, I don't want to lend to somebody because the seventh year is very close to coming. I don't want them to be able to walk away without ever paying me back. Maybe I'll wait just a few more weeks until, until we can get past that, and then I can lend something so that I can actually have opportunity to be paid back. God addressed that kind of mindset. Hey, if that's the point of why you would help somebody out, then you're not accomplishing what I so desire. And if they cry unto the Lord, if there's a need and, and, they, they, and it could be met by, by another believer and it doesn't, and they cry out to God for, for help with that need, it's sin unto the one that could have met that need. I mean, imagine somebody crying out to God, asking God, please answer this need when God has given you the means to provide for them. They're, they're asking God for the answer to their prayers. You are to the answer to their prayers. And for us to refrain from, from helping in those situations, hey, that's a wonderful opportunity that we can give. The believing Jews were never to remove themselves from a situation in which they could provide need. And again, this is all within the spirit of God's own character. Have you ever felt so convicted about providing for someone's need that you felt like you had to, I don't know, remove yourself from the situation entirely? Shield from your eyes, you feel awkward about noticing a need, and so maybe you, you try to drift your eyes away. You try to close your ears off from hearing more about the need, or maybe even try to distract yourself with other thoughts, because you know, oh, that's going to take more time than I'm willing to give. The amount that's, that needs to be given, the amount of resources that need to be given, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. And we shy away from these opportunities, but really, these are direct opportunities to meet needs they're really almost like direct gifts from God to give us an opportunity to express his love to somebody. Let us take those opportunities. Verse number 10 said, Thou shalt surely give him, and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him. Thou shalt not be grieved. <laughs> these, these, these needs, when they're met, ought not come directly from obligation. It's easy for that to happen. Well, I guess I ought to give it. You know, I, I have this need. I have, what, I have what I'm able to do to help this person out. Now give, give of a willing heart filled with love for God and for his people. That's what God so desires. We read this verse earlier, but the Bible does teach us in, in, this, in this 11th verse, for the poor shall never cease out of the land. There are always opportunities to give. Until Jesus Christ returns and all needs are completely evaporated because he fulfills all of them, there are always going to be needs. There will always be those that have something that they need, whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's some other resource. And God as well will always provide Christian brothers and sisters that can stand up and meet those needs. So we need to make sure that we're taking those opportunities, that we're willing to care for other believers, care for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ without immediately expecting return but rather out of a love for God and for his people. Excuse me, people. Every believer ought to be willing to meet the needs of fellow believers without any expectation of return. What should we do if we've been guilty of this? 
If we have expected return, if we have exacted usury of some kind upon somebody, well, the Bible does teach us that we ought to restore what may be wrongfully taken. This was what Nehemiah commanded for these people. In verse number eight, it says, and I said unto them, we after our ability have redeemed our brethren, the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell your brethren or shall they be sold unto us? Then held they their peace and found nothing to answer. Nehemiah refers to the fact that the Jews had just been captive for so long. Were they really going to then captivate each other? You've just been released from prison. You've just been released from captivity. Are you then going to place each other in the same situation? Avoid that concept. That is everything to do but the love of God. Avoid that, that, that temptation. They held their peace in this moment. They found nothing to answer. They're, they're sitting, they're listening, they're willing to listen to the possibility of change, these Jewish nobles and rulers. The Bible says in verse number nine, also I said, it is not good that you do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? For these Jewish nobles and rulers to live in this way, that is a way always seeking the benefit of self, it was to directly defy a life in submission and fear of God. To live without fear of God is to encourage the enemy to blaspheme him. This is spoken of in 2 Samuel 12, verse 14, in, in which David committed his great sin. The Bible says, How be it, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. There's opportunity for unbelievers, for the world to blaspheme God when they see God's own commit sins. In Romans 2.24, the Bible says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. I certainly don't want to be reason for an unbeliever to blaspheme God. And that may be the case if we refuse to live in fear of God, which comes to refusing to follow the kinds of mindsets that he wants us to follow. One commentator put it like this, nothing exposes religion more to reproach than the worldliness and hard-heartedness of the professors of it. Those that rigorously insist upon their right with a very ill grace try to pers persuade others to give up theirs. It's easy for us to so hone in on our rights. It's fair for me to make sure that I receive return when I'm helping somebody out. I'm just protecting myself. I'm financially securing myself or I'm emotionally securing myself. But such a strong focus upon, upon self, upon, upon our own rights is to reject the desire that God so has. I mean, look at his example. He forsook every one of his rights to provide us with every opportunity of them. And yet we, we so often are tempted towards the idea of, of protecting self in, in opposition to helping others freely. We must be careful, careful of that. For in John 13, 35, the Bible tells us, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. How does the world know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ? Love one to another, love among each other, among believers in God. God did allow for the exacting of usury with foreigners. That is, with those who were unbelievers, those who were not believers of God. God allowed for the exacting of usury. He didn't condemn the whole world for the idea of charging interest. If that were the case, well, we bought a home last month and I, I would have a little bit of argument against the idea of interest. That'd be kind of nice. But God is not on my side with that. He's not condemning interest across the board with everybody. What he is condemning is the exacting of usury, the charging of interest among his own. Charging interest against each other. That's not his desire. How does the world recognize disciples of Jesus Christ? Christians. 
by the love one to another. And if this is the case, if we so unconditionally love one another by being willing to fulfill all needs around us without any expectation of return, this is an opportunity like 1 Peter 2.12 tells us where evildoers, the world, my, by our good works, which they shall behold, potentially they could glorify God in the day of visitation. What a wonderful thing that could happen through our unconditional love for each other by without expectation of return, providing for the needs that arise among each other. Let's allow God to use us in such a way. In verse number 10, Nehemiah says, I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Listen, we can provide, we can give them what they need, but let's not look for self-benefit. In verse number 11, he says, restore, I pray you, to them even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine, and the oil that ye exact of them. Wow. Nehemiah says, hey, everything you've wrongfully taken, go ahead and return it. That interest that you've charged, 1% a month, so a 12% annual, annual rate, return all of that. Return the lands that you've taken as interest. Return the houses that you've taken as interest. That is quite a challenge for them to turn that thing around, to turn all that they've taken around. But how do we fix what we've done? If we've not properly cared for each other in the way that God has so desired, we've charged interest in a sense, we've exacted usury, we've expected return when we should not have. How do we fix something like that? Restore, restore. Relieve the expectation that you have. Remove it from your mindset. And if need be, if a situation has gotten in this position, even be willing to ask for forgiveness in the situation. For the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 2.21, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Is it not the steps of Jesus Christ to be willing to offer all in exchange for the benefit of others? What a wonderful example he, he placed for us. Caring for our fellow believers in need requires restoring what we may have wrongfully taken. What, our, our, what ought our response be when caring or restoring is available? Praise to God. Praise the Lord for those opportunities. Praise the Lord for those opportunities. In verse number 12, what's the response of the people? Then said they, we will restore them and will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. They responded positively. Okay, hey, we'll do that. We understand this is something God desires. We've done wrong. We will remove ourselves from this wrong. We will turn away from it and we will restore what we've wrongfully taken from our brethren and be willing to help them freely going forward. Nehemiah, as a leader that inspected what he expected, asked the priest, make sure that they follow this promise. And did they? Well, verse 13, Nehemiah has one more thing to say. He says, says, also I shook my lap and said, so God shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise. Even thus be he shaken out and emptied. This act of shaking one's lap was a gesture that symbolized complete rejection of any who might violate the agreement. It's said that when Roman ambassadors proposed the choice of peace or war to the Carthaginians, they made use of a similar ceremony where they would physically shake their togas to show that they were ready for war. So anybody that would reject this promise, that would break what God had asked for them to do, in a way, are being shaken across. They're willing to go at war with God, and of course that's something that they would want to avoid. Will they commit to the promise? The end of this verse tells us. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praise the Lord. So be it, praise the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. 
They're willing to move forward. Good promises, someone said, are good things, but good performances are better. And they held up this promise. They fulfilled it. They adhered to the promise that they made, that they were going to move forward without charging interest, without expecting return, but rather helping their fellow brethren without any of that. Rather helping their fellow brethren because it was a desire of God and because they decided that they were going to love in the way that God so desired. I'm thankful especially for the example that Jesus Christ led. We're going to finish with one more verse tonight, and that verse is 2 Corinthians 8-9. 2 Corinthians 8-9 tells us, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that, through, that ye through his poverty might be rich. What a beautiful verse. Jesus Christ had everything, and in order to make us rich, when we were in poverty, he decided to be the one in poverty and provide us everything that he had. If we are to follow his steps, like 1 Peter 2 tells us, we ought, in the same way, difficult as it may be, be willing to meet the needs of our fellow believers, even if it costs us everything. How can we meet the needs that God is presenting before us today? How can we care for our Christian brothers and sisters in a way that would honor and praise the Lord? God presents opportunities to you all the time. He presents opportunities to me, to all of us, all the time. If he's given you the means to be able to meet those needs, do so. Provide gifts. Perform acts of service. Give in any way possible of your time, money, any sort of resources. If God has brought you to this need, fulfill the need and do so out of a love for God and for his people, not out of a desire for an expectation of return.